Good morning. Please join me in prayer before we turn to God's Word. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to look at your Word together and to sit under its teaching. Father, we ask now that you would strengthen me as I preach your Word and that you in turn would strengthen each one of us to proclaim your name to one another and to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, when was a time when you experienced great joy? What was the occasion? Maybe it was getting your license or your first job. Maybe it was school graduation, then getting your first real job. Maybe it was engagement or a wedding or the birth of a child. Maybe it was purchasing a home or a car or you fill in the blank. Maybe it was reaching a goal you had worked hard to achieve. Maybe it was a candidate winning an election or your team winning a championship. For me, I remember living in Philadelphia, I actually don't exactly remember the year, I think it was 2008, and the Philadelphia Phillies winning the World Series. Now, I'm not from Philadelphia, but I was excited, and I ran, after that last out, the five blocks to Broad Street, which runs right through the city, and it was mayhem, it was euphoria. I was giving people hugs, people were crying, People were, there was lots going on. People were embracing me saying, you've been waiting your whole life for this. It was, among other things, a very joyful experience. Well, what about for you? When was a time you experienced great joy? Our passage this morning is a joyful passage. I'll read it in a moment. It's a psalm of praise. It is celebratory, and it is joyful. The occasion is celebrating military victory. God has subdued Israel's enemy. God is reigning over the nations. And God is showing that He is king, not only over Israel, but over all the earth. So I invite you to turn with me now to our passage, Psalm 47. You can find that on page 472 in your Bible. I have my own page number here. That's not going to help you. But 472, if you're pulling from the Pew Bible, that's Psalm 47. As always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that, take that home with you as, as a gift from us, something that you can read throughout the week to learn more about God and His promises for His people. Reading from Psalm 47, starting in verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. 
God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen. The main idea of our passage is this. God is king over all the earth. Therefore, all people must worship him. God is king over all the earth. Therefore, all people must worship him. We see this main idea in two places in the psalm, in, psalm, in verse 2 and verse 7. And this breaks the psalm actually into two sections. So the format that I plan to use for the sermon is, is following the format that we see in this psalm, where there are two sections. I want to suggest for us two reasons that we must worship God. So for those of you taking notes this morning, that will serve as our outline. Two reasons... We must worship God. I'll give them both to you at the outset. Reason number one, we must worship God because he is the conquering king. Reason number one, we must worship God because he is the conquering king. And reason number two, we must worship God because he is the reigning king. We must worship God because he is the reigning king. So why must we worship God? Reason number one, we must worship God because he is the conquering king. This is looking at the first five verses. As we read, our psalm, it starts with a call to worship. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. This call to worship extends to all people. It's an invitation to all people to worship God. So much like at the start of this service, after the welcome, we read a call to worship, and that is an invitation for everyone present to join with us and worship to God. But this, this call to worship, this is more than an invitation. It's also an instruction. So it's, it's wedding season. Perhaps some of you have received an invite to a wedding and a request to RSVP. And there you have the option to either joyfully accept or regretfully decline. Well, well, this is not so much like a wedding invitation. It's not so much an RSVP of that kind. It's more like maybe a, a public service announcement, something that should get your attention, something that you ought to hear and adhere to. It's a command, actually, for us to obey. It's an instruction that we're to joyfully join in. The expectation here is actually that we would worship God. And this is an appropriate expectation. If you look at verse 2, we see the Lord is king over all the earth. It's appropriate that all people worship God because God is king over all people. That's the appropriate response. You could actually argue that is the natural response. Worship is the natural response when people recognize that the Lord is king over all the earth. Worship is the natural response 
when people recognize the Lord is king. God is king over you and over the entire universe. And seeing this reality results in a natural response of worship. What might come less natural is the way in which the psalmist calls all people to worship God. The psalmist is calling us to engage in exuberant worship. Clap your hands. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. A recent example I have of this was two weeks ago when we were able to host Vacation Bible School. During the opening program, we sang songs. We clapped. We shouted. We were loud. We were joyful. I'm seeing some head nods from some of the kids, some of the volunteers who were there. And, and, and kids and volunteers who were there, you are an example to each one of us of exuberant praise, an example that each one of us can learn from and be encouraged by. Well, you might say that comes natural to kids. And I would respond by saying worship comes natural to all of us. Fundamentally, Scripture says we are all worshipers. And personally, you know yourself to be a worshiper. We all get excited about some things. So when was the last time you got excited? You were exuberant, expressive in your joy. In the introduction, I asked us to recall a time that we experienced great joy. Our moments of joy give us a glimpse into what it is that we love. And they reveal something of what we worship. And if we love the Lord, our worship of Him ought to be joyful as well. So perhaps a, a helpful question for you to ask yourself is, how can exuberant praise of God become more natural for me? A suggestion the psalmist gives is to sing, and maybe that's it for you, to sing. Maybe it's reflecting on the gospel on your own. Maybe it's sharing your testimony of conversion with someone else. Maybe it's being intentional and having gospel conversations as you meet up with others. Maybe it's showing the love of Christ to others through hospitality. Whatever the way, whatever it is that we choose to, to, in whichever way we steep ourselves in the truths of the gospel, we will stir our affections for Christ, and that will overflow in joyful praise of Him. Well, whatever helps you to worship God, we know worship is aided by knowing who God is. Verse 2 tells us more about who God is. We've already noted that, that God is king, that He is over all the earth. This verse also tells us more about God's position, that He is the Most High. He is over the earth, and He is over all others. There is none above Him. We're told of God's power, that He is a great king. And we're reminded that God is 
personal. The name Lord. He is the Lord, the covenant God, the one who draws near to his people, a God who is mindful of them and faithful to care for them. Friends, this is the God, the kind of God that you and I serve, that you and I are called to worship. He is positioned on high, he's powerful and great, and yet he's also personal. He is present with us. This is the God we are called to worship. So let us praise him together as we've been doing this morning. We've been doing this corporately. What about your personal worship of God? Do you find it difficult to praise him? Could it be your difficulty in in worshiping God is related to your lack of knowledge about him? Could it be that you lack relationship with God? Could it be that your, your worship is hampered in some way because you have not taken time during the day to be with God that you might know him through his word? Well, knowing God is essential to being able to worship Him, as we are called to in this psalm. And knowing Him will only enable us further to worship God with joy. Well, it is apparent that this psalmist knew who God was, because he calls for joyful praise, but he also calls all people to fear God. And fear is an appropriate worshipful response to who God is. Fear as well is an appropriate worshipful response to what God has done. So moving into verses 3 to 5, we see some of what God has done. And this can be summed up as God is the conquering king. Let me read verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. This verse is likely a reference to Israel's conquest of the promised land. God, the conquering king, has given Israel victory over her foe. Now, if we zoom out the lens of time, we see that God has not only been victorious during Israel's history, but really throughout history. So let's consider briefly together the beginning of history at the time of creation. God made everything good, and he made man and woman very good, yet Satan slithers in and seeks to defeat God. He lies to Adam and Eve, who were tempted to doubt God's goodness and to disobey God's command. This ushered in sin and and death into the world. This seemingly was a win for Satan, but it was not an ultimate victory. God, who is the conquering king, promised to send a redeemer who would crush the serpent, who would defeat the power of sin and death, who would conquer evil and ultimately would bring about victory over his enemy, the devil. Since the beginning, God has been the conquering king. If you've been with us in our sermon series in Genesis, we consider further God being the conquering king. He has sustained his people. He has been faithful to his promises. He's persevered his people, not because of goodness or perfection of their own, but because of his. We've considered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've not been particularly commendable, 
but God has been faithful. God keeps his word. The Lord, the covenant-making God, is keeping his covenant. And it's important because his character is on the line. His, his reputation is at stake, so he will be faithful to his word, and he has been. Since the beginning of history and throughout redemptive history, God has shown himself to be accomplishing his purposes and all along the way, and certainly at the end, he has shown himself to be the victor. Think a little bit now about Israel's history. This is a praise of the people of Israel. And God has been a conquering king to Israel throughout all of their days. A prime example is the Exodus in the days of Moses. When Israel was in captivity under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians, God delivered his people. He led them out of bondage and slavery to a land of beauty and plenty and rest. Along the way, God protected Israel from their enemies. When Pharaoh changed his mind and sent Egyptian armies to overtake Israel, God intervened. God confused the enemy armies. He opened up the Red Sea so that Israel could cross on dry ground, and he used those very same waters to wash up the enemy, to swallow them, so that Israel then could safely continue on her journey. And Israel did. Further along in their journey, we see that God enabled them to conquest the promised land. In the days of Joshua, Israel was able to possess Canaan because of their conquering king, who had subdued peoples under them and nations under their feet. They not only possessed the land, but they dwelt in it under his rule. And so long as Israel remained faithful, God was faithful to them. God was faithful to protect them and to provide for them. He ensured that enemies would not have power over them, but rather with God as their king, Israel would have power over their enemies. So the beginning of history, Israel's history, let's think just briefly about your own for a moment. Consider your own history. First, speaking to the Christian, if you are a Christian, God has subdued your, your greatest enemy. He subdued sin and death. Sin and death no longer have the same hold on you. You are no longer a slave to sin, but now you are able not to sin. You are no longer living a life of death and destruction, but rather living a life of, of life, of love, and of peace. God has subdued your enemy, the devil. Satan is not your master. Rather, God is your king. But friend, let me also speak to you here this morning if you are not a Christian. I would ask that you please hear me. God is king over all the earth. Until you recognize this, God will subdue you. Scripture describes each of us as enemies of God apart from faith in Christ. And Scripture urges us to turn to the Lord while he may be found. Now is the time to turn. Because one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
every one of us will recognize Jesus as the king. And it is better to submit yourself to God's kingship now when he can receive you as his own than on judgment day when he will have to cast you away to a place of eternal torment under his righteous wrath, separated from him in hell for all of eternity. For those who do not humble themselves before this conquering king, that is the heritage they choose. But there is hope for you. There is hope for you. God subdues his enemies that they might see him as exalted. He places them underfoot so that they may recognize him as the most high. Remember the call to worship earlier in the psalm. It goes out to all peoples. All peoples are invited to join in praise to God. All peoples and all nations are invited to fear God, to be in awe of Him, to worship Him. And this conquering king invites even his enemies to be his friends when they turn to him in praise. Well, our passage continues. Verse 4, He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. This verse is likely a reference to the possession and the distribution of the promised land. This was Israel's heritage, the land that God had chosen for them. And I want us to see a very direct parallel between Israel's heritage and our own, namely that it was chosen by God. Just like God chose to love Israel and to give them the promised land for their possession, so God chose to love us in Christ and accomplish our salvation. For those of us who have placed ourselves under Christ, we have this glorious heritage. If we've repented of our sins and placed our faith in the saving power of God through Christ's death and resurrection, we are included in the people of God. That is regardless of background, regardless of your history, the things that you have done, when we humbly turn to Him, we are promised an eternal inheritance that will never fade and that will never spoil. Reflect on that for a moment. Does that bring you joy? Do you delight in the heritage that God has for you? Perhaps with eternity in view, you, you can come along with me. You're able to find joy in God's heritage for you. But you may find it harder to rejoice in the heritage that God has given you today, sort of day to day. Well, let me assure you that the God we entrust ourselves to eternally is the God we can entrust ourselves to daily. The God we entrust ourselves to eternally is the God we can entrust ourselves to daily. God's choices for us are always better than our choices are for ourselves. We've all tested that out, haven't we? How often have our choices let us down? How often has God interfered with our plans, our choices, and ultimately that has been for the better? Whenever God tells us no, He has a better yes in mind. 
And it is better that he chooses our heritage than we choose our heritage. He has chosen a lovely heritage for us. Well, the response to that ought to be praise. And as we look at our next few verses, we hear an ascension, a rising up of praise. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, there are a couple suggestions of what this verse could be referring to. Some say it's a ceremony depicting Christ's enthronement, a celebration. Others, a lifting up of the ark of the presence of God and the, the praise that accompanies that. Either way, what we do see here clearly is an allusion to the ascension of Christ, his return to heaven. When Christ returned to heaven, while we don't know of trumpets sounding, we certainly know there were shouts of praise. Christ had accomplished all that the Father had given him on earth to do. He was the conquering king, and now he had returned to heaven, and there was much rejoicing. He had returned to his throne as the Most High and as the king over all the earth. Praise him. Well, Christ still sits enthroned today. He still sits enthroned today, and that gives us a second reason we must worship God. Reason number two, we must worship God because He is the reigning King. This psalm continues with another call to worship. Verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. A moment ago, I had us consider the ascension of Christ and how He was greeted with a shout. Well, here we read of this ascending praise. The psalmist five times tells us to sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to God, sing praises. It's as though there is a crescendo of praise. I think there is a principle for us here, and the principle is this. The culmination of praise to God is further praise. The culmination of praise to God is further praise of God. The more we consider who God is and what He has done, the more we are inclined to, to give Him praise, the more we see He's worthy of praise, and the more we are ready to respond to Him in praise. Well, the praiseworthy response given in this psalm is to sing psalms, sing praises with a psalm. Now, I've already noted that singing does serve to stir our affections. God in His kindness has given us this command because He knows the good that it does for our souls. So, let us sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let us do so Sunday, this morning as we have done together, and let us do so throughout the week. Fill yourself with scriptural songs. I would encourage you to even ask others about worshipful, worshipful songs that they have found. As a parent to young children, I've found many children's songs to be rich in biblical truth and also enriching 
to my soul. So I really would encourage you to make that a point of conversation this week. What, what songs, what biblical songs, scripture-rich songs, enliven your soul throughout the week? Whether you find singing a duty or delight, God has prescribed that we sing to Him, that He might be exalted and our affections for Him enlivened. Well, we've considered how knowing who God is and what He has done aids us in worship, as well, knowing what God is doing aids us in worship. So as we look at these last two verses, we see some of what God is doing, which is summed up as God is reigning as King. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. This is as true today as the day this psalm was written. Just as it's true that Christ came to earth, that He died and rose, that He ascended to heaven, so it is true that God reigns in heaven. Whether nations, you and I recognize this or not, God is over us. God is over the nations. We often pray that the nations would recognize God is over them. So in our pastoral prayer, we pray for the nations, and we pray that the gospel would go forth, that churches would be established, and that leaders would see themselves as servants under God. This is the reality. God sits on His holy throne. His rule is, is happening now. It is certain it will continue. His victory is accomplished, and He sits in the position of victor. I think noting both God's position and His posture are both significant. His position and His posture. He is in an elevated position. He's above the nations. He has power over all people. And he is in the seated position. That's his posture. This communicates the certainty of his reign, that everything is under his sovereign control. And he now sits ready to return, ready, ready to gather you and I, his people, and ready to judge all the earth. So let us continue to pray that we and all the nations of the earth would recognize the reign of God. Let us pursue and live out the gospel locally as well as globally. Let us continue to do gospel work as a local church. Let us continue to send workers to the nations. And let us continue to support workers who have already gone out to the nations. By God's grace, good gospel work is already being done. And because God sits on the throne, we have every confidence that more gospel work is still being done. God is continuing to gather His people. Verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of God, of the God of Abraham. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God, of the God of Abraham. What we read here is, is really fulfilled, kind of, it's, it's a prophecy um, that, that is fulfilled in the return of Christ. 
when God gathers all his people. And this, this prophecy, it serves as, as a promise, one that motivates us to continue in gospel work. The shields of the peoples belong to God. He is highly exalted. As I mentioned, we will see this most clearly in the return of Christ. All nations, all princes, all peoples under God. And he is gathering all people to belong to himself. Praise him because this is a work that he promised, that he has initiated, and that he is fulfilling. He's fulfilling this even now. So as we look around at our local church, may may the church on earth be a preview of this picture of the gathering of all God's people in heaven. May Oakhurst Baptist Church be a church made up of all kinds of people, many different types of people, but who are one, who are united in worship to the one true God. So we are to worship God because he is the conquering king and because he is the reigning king. I want to give you a little bonus section very briefly by asking the question, what does worship of God look like? What does it look like to worship God? We're called to worship God because he is the conquering king, the reigning king. What does that look like? And I think very briefly, this passage actually suggests five things, five acts of worship that we can observe in this passage. So very briefly, first, has been mentioned, sing. Sing to the king. Let's worship God through song. Let's sing on Sunday. Let's sing throughout the week. It's interesting, this psalm doesn't say anything about the tune of the singing, so we leave that to those who lead us in song on Sunday morning. But it does say something, and and we all appreciate on-tune singing, but it does say something about the the tone of the singing, that it is to be joyful, that it is to be exuberant because God is king over all the earth. So first, we worship as we sing. Second, we worship as we surrender. Surrender to the king. We are all indeed subject to him. Acknowledge him as your king. Yield your hopes and dreams to him. As we submit our plans to his greater purposes, we find no greater purpose. Third, serve the king. Serve the king. He reigns today, so let us use today, let us use every day to serve the Lord with gladness. As we commit our ways to him, to service to him, we will find no greater joy. A fourth act of worship is seek Seek after the king. Let us go to God. He sits on the throne. Let us seek after him, as we are doing now, alongside others. He's gathering people to worship him, so let us join with those people. Let us commit to our local church and to commit to seeking after God together. Finally, we worship God as we share. Let us Share with others the good news of the king. God, as we mentioned, is gathering people of all kinds. This is the work he is doing and he will do. And he invites us to join in this joyful work. So why not enjoy 
invite, why not invite others in joining you and exalting God? Because as the psalm closes, he is highly exalted. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us the truth of who you are, of all that you have done, of what you are doing, and of what we have to look forward to as your people. As we reflect on these truths this morning, would we be prompted to give you praise? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.